Adobe.co. This is the Flagship Pod, a weekly podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time, you know, it's earnings season, folks. We just got a huge slate of bank earnings this morning. We're getting a lot more in the coming week as well. The economy is kicking off into kind of high gear after a pretty bleak September, honestly. And so we want to make sure that we sort of understand what mechanics are powering this. To help me get through that this week, to get through a lot to talk about today, folks, as always, I'm joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good? Where are you calling in from today, dude? Yeah, not much. I mean, everything is very chaotic. Every week we get on here, we say this week's crazy, and the next week, and then the next week after that's crazier. So it's just interesting kind of seeing how it's all playing out. But currently in, in New York, meeting with the team, meeting with investors, a lot to discuss. So happy to kind of dive into it today. The classics, yeah. So after... September had a big sell-off basically on vibes alone. Like We were worried about potentially earnings being compressed. We got kind of the opposite news today, but at the same time, there's all these competing forces. We've been heavily hit by a bond fever for the past couple of weeks. It's kind of started breaking for a lot of different reasons. But when we think about where we're going to start here, Justin, I think like the most important thing is keeping up with the world. So I guess one of the main things powering the market right now is a really deep kind of uncertainty as we think about what's happening over in the Middle East. Obviously, audience, you already know the situation that's happening in Israel between Israel and Hamas. It's developing every day. We're recording this on Friday afternoon, so we're currently looking at the possibility of a ground invasion in Gaza as Israel has basically asked the UN to help evacuate 1.1 million people as we figure out what the response is to Hamas's surprise attack last week. So Justin, you know, obviously we, we, you and I have some biases here. We have some sensitivities to this. We both, uh, I'm married into a family that has, you know, people in Israel. You obviously have friends and family over in Israel. We're trying to keep those biases at the door. And just unfortunately, when we're talking about a situation that's very sensitive to both of us, we're talking from the perspective of the markets. And so it kind of feels a little bit banal the way we talk about this. But I think it's important to acknowledge that on front and then get into what are some of the effects you see happening to the market? How is the world kind of reacting to this? And is there anything else you want to cover as we think about just like obviously all of the big emotions we're having in regards to the situation happening over in Israel right now. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, like our our hearts just go out to all the people who are affected. Obviously, when there's any sort of conflict, there's so many innocent people in between. And it's obviously a, a really big tragedy seeing this unfold in the way that it has. Um, so it's really definitely condemning all the attacks. Um, and And hoping for the best and, you know, seeing how, uh, how it all plays out. Obviously, in the last week, a lot has unfolded from the attacks in Israel, the counteroffensive, um, and now, um, as of recording this on Friday, them discussing, um, or not discussing, but saying they're going to be going into northern Gaza and giving them a, you know, 24 to 48-hour notice to evacuate a big part of their population. So, that's kind of a current state of affairs. We're not going to touch upon, I think, what we anticipate and what we expect because it changes so rapidly. And by the time this is released on Monday, obviously that 24, 48-hour notice would have been passed and who knows how it, <laughs> it'll play out. We're not military strategists, so we're not going to pretend to try and anticipate there. So what we can do, though, is see how this, obviously, given our focus, see how this will impact markets, uh, geopolitical relationships, and everything downstream. So... On the geopolitical side, I mean, it obviously has massive implications for the markets. You look at Russia, Ukraine, obviously the conflict's still ongoing there, but that affects wheat prices, oil prices, a whole host of things. And it's it's not so dissimilar, you know, given what's going on now 
in the Middle East. Um, it's always been a highly contested area, and like there's always been, you know, these these fighting back and forth. But now it's really kicked back up with the recent attacks um, on Israel. So, looking at it more closely, what are the big, you know, kind of exports from Israel? So technology is probably the number one export. A lot of tech companies are either founded there and or based there. Um, and so with a lot of their resources capped over the, you know, the, the last week and the following weeks to come, like adversely, there's going to be a hit on earnings and, you know, some probably growth efforts as they really focus on domestic security instead of the the focus on the business in the short term. Uh, a lot of the world's oil comes from the Middle East. It's, it's a long-winded way of saying that ultimately, like how it plays out is obviously yet to be seen and just kind of not not help the current situation. So it's basically just very, very muddled. We're taking it day by day. In the short run, besides that, defense names have done really well. So Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman have big spikes. They've since sold off a little bit. Um, but obviously, their net benefits of any geopolitical conflicts, given their activity in defense overall. So this is something we're going to be watching closely. You know, We obviously hope that it all ends peacefully as soon as possible, but uh, anticipating that this will continue to persist for some time. It's one of those things where it's really hard to see how it ends too, because we're looking at just a very, very intense situation, right? That's way beyond our pay grade too. And so the main thing we're watching is how other international partners play into this. We saw oil prices spike today, not necessarily just because of this conflict, but because of the U.S. also stepping up sanctions on Russia. Apparently America hasn't forgotten that there's also a war in Ukraine as well. A bunch of companies Companies were trying to get around price caps set by the world market at $75 a barrel for Russian oil. Two companies tried to transport oil that was higher than that, that was bought from Russia. And now we're seeing a huge spike in WTI crude creeping back up towards $90 a barrel as the world is now concerned about supply crunches. So again, this is one of those situations that can go from very bad to much worse very quickly, depending on how the community in the region reacts to however Israel chooses to play this, if they go into full ground invasion to get their hostages back, or if it's sort of like more limited engagements. Obviously, very, very active situation. Don't want to speculate too much because it's as fraud as you can possibly get. So that's what we're watching. One really interesting thing is, and Justin, I'd love to just get your view on this. Throughout the week, what we were seeing in September that was really killing us in terms of equities was just how high the U.S. 10-year was getting. We were having basically bond fever. Pretty close to 5% yield on 10-year bonds, which is like crazy free money. And like, how, how does this play out, Justin, when we're thinking about this? Is there anything else we can think about in terms of how the bond market's going to react to this? And is it really just like going to be bonds versus equities for the foreseeable future if you're looking at, you know, 4% yield or higher? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And just to kind of wrap up the last point before touching on this, I, I think the biggest thing to watch for going forward and this will ultimately impact bond and equity markets is how this really like plays out from a relationship standpoint and geopolitical. So a lot of people are asking like why like they attacked them in the first place. And so basically there's a lot of reasons, but Israel is starting to really develop like more and more peace talks and relationships with Saudi Arabia, who they've historically not done well with in terms of relationship. And so the more and more those talks progress, the more it uh, like isolates countries who are against them. So again, Iran, Gaza, and some of those areas who like are very, very anti-Israel. So in order to kind of further destabilize the region and get Israel to attack them and ultimately like kill in the crossfire, like innocent Muslim people that ultimately will infuriate Saudi Arabia further. And that really progresses like, st like stalls peace talks and any development in the Middle East. So whatever progress was being made there, it's not necessarily over by any means, but it definitely is not going to help. And so that's then added more instability to the world. And 
and then subsequently more of a flight to fixed income and bonds because the equity risk premium isn't there. So to answer your question, I mean, you look at markets in general, if you're investing in equities, like you obviously are taking some risk and you want to be rewarded for that risk. The market has returned 10% per year on average for the last like 100 years. But again, it goes up, it goes down. Uh, depending on when you enter is is also very indicative of how the results are. So again, you're doing that because you anticipate you'll get paid, but that isn't always the case. And so people are always comfortable with a certain level of risk if they can get that 10, 20% per year. But right now you look at fixed income markets and yields on short-term treasuries are yielding you know north of 5%. And so you look at that and you're like, well, if my goal is 10%, and I can get half that more or less guaranteed from the U.S. government. Why, you know, does it make sense to stay in the equity markets given all the instability in the world with higher rates, higher inflation, um, you know, wars in the Middle East, wars in Eastern Europe? So a lot of people are looking at, you know, treasuries and saying, like, I'm just going to put my money there. I'd rather get 5% guaranteed than risking potentially even getting 10%. And that's why we've seen, like, a lot of flight to safety over the last six or the last few months. And then furthermore, that's why we've really seen utility stocks and other names sell off because those historically have been safer investments that also offer some more yield. So now, again, with yields being so high in the treasury market, again, a lot of people are looking at this like, I'd rather just take my risk-free money. And when I'm ready and the world seems like a better place, ultimately I'll get involved. I think the problem with that is people always, always underestimate how the, fast those transitions happen in the market. So when the market rallies 10, 20, 30%, they're not necessarily going to have the ability to participate on the way up. So the way we're investing is definitely being defensive. We've been doing it for the last year or two years, rather, at this point. We've been cautioning, saying the rally in the first half of the year, there were still a lot of inherent risks. Those inherent risks now really seem to be playing out and materializing in the markets. So again, our strategy is take the risk-free return where we can get it, but actively, again, invest in the names that are sold off valuations are cheap and the future of the business and like cash flows look strong that way we'll be able to participate in the upside limit our downside and still get paid you know strong cash returns in in the short term that's that's kind of how we've always been approaching it and that's why we've been able to outperform this year you know when the market's going up people want to participate but that's not always the best time to participate when the market's selling off things look bleak that's the time to find opportunity and kind of strike where where things look cheap. And so there's a handful of names out there we really like. Um, and that's where we've, you know, for the people who are in our app, where we've been recommending, you know, three different names per week with, with existing strategies that we believe in. Um, but as long as inflation remains persistent, rates remain, you know, elevated, it's going to be a stressful environment for a lot of companies. And for now, audience, feel free to check out app.mobi.co as well. Get into our app, see our long-term perspective, because we have been adding, we've been diversifying a lot as we think about how things are going to play out across Q4 and Q1 of next year. We try to keep like a six-month perspective on the short term that translates into a five-year perspective in the long term. And that's how we sort of think about our equities as we move forward, trying to find the sort of capital flows that are happening that can be advantageous as we find names that are more overweight and underweight. But Justin, you kind of got into this because we have been cautiously pessimistic with more bullish outlook than I think a lot of people have had. And that's kind of playing out at the very start of earnings season as we move forward here. What we're looking at right now is one of the riskier days in earnings season, at least if you're like looking at what people expected from the markets. And that was bank earnings. Again, this is Friday afternoon, Friday morning, we got JP Morgan, BlackRock, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. 
Most banks are doing pretty well. There was some concerns about, you know, maybe some capital outflows. As we look at this, though, just your general thoughts, Justin, like, would you like to dive into bank earnings a little bit more granularly before we move into the rest of earnings season? I mean, we need to really see how it plays out a little bit more to, you know, make a, a selection either way. Obviously, to your point, bank earnings have been pretty strong. We look at JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, they're posting higher than expected profits while revenues are increasing. Uh, so it's not necessarily just cost cutting measures. Citigroup jumped. Uh, BlackRock did have net outflows. So it's something to watch for there. Um, but effectively, you know, a stronger than anticipated earnings so far. But again, ultimately, the expectations are rather muted. So when you're beating, beating muted expectations, it definitely says a little bit less than, you know, what's really happening. And we're not saying this is exactly happening, but if you made a hundred dollars last year, normally you grow 10%. So you make 110 this year. If the market expects you to do 103 because it's a bad year and all of a sudden you do 104, that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing well. You're just doing better than what people anticipated. Um, so it's something to really watch for is like when people bring expectations down from like what their normal history has been, you know, how much higher is it and then those expectations and ultimately how much lower is it than normal times is, is really like what we're watching for. Again, having said that the economies continue to be resilient rates have been higher for longer and they look like they'll persist higher for longer. But again, with rates higher for longer, things break. Um, and you look at inflation, which just came out this week, and the numbers, while they are getting better in some areas, again, ultimately, there's still a lot of red flags. And so energy prices have continued to remain high. Housing costs have continued to remain high. And when you think about you know, your day-to-day, -day, those are a big portion of what you spend your money on. So it's still being felt by the end consumer. The end consumer and the economy has been resilient. But at what point do things really start going down inflation-wise? And if for things to go really down in the direction that we need it to be, is that ultimately going to be the breaking point of the economy to the point where instead of some sort of shallow recessionary event, it's a very deep recessionary event. I think most people are calling for some sort of a recessionary event for the last 12 months now. But I think how, you know, you hear a lot of talk about a soft landing. It's how soft can this be or will it be? And I think a lot of that is, you know, still being priced into the market over the last month as the first half of the year expectations were through the roof. We would be reducing rates soon. We'd get back on track to growth. You know, something that we've been calling for since January is that that isn't going to happen and it hasn't happened. And, you know, the idea of rates being back, you know, sub 3%, sub 4% doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. So again, we've continued to be cautious. We're happy to see that bank, bank earnings have been better than expected. Um, but we are being, again, extremely cautious. We put out a report today on Costco, for example. You know, retail is going to be feeling this as consumers spend less. Um, and so this is really something we're, we're keeping our, our eyes on in addition to treasury yields and everything else. And I think it's really important to kind of dive into that CPI real quick, audience. One, one thing that kind of got a little underreported when the market kind of had a ho-hum reaction to the CPI was watching and just trying to see um, exactly where inflation is going. And core inflation managed to stay perfectly flat and actually a little bit behind expectations, whereas top-line inflation came in a little hotter than expected. But that can kind of be explained by sort of the spike we saw in oil prices uh, amongst other energy expenditures in September, right? So really core inflation is becoming more and more important in terms of thinking about how the Fed's going to react here uh, because we're going to see those costs decrease in October across the board no matter what. Even a week of lower oil prices is enough to sort of like 
make things smooth out across, you know, the whole month in terms of how that's going to affect prices. And so the only real thorn in the Fed side right now is shelter expenses, which have stayed high and consistently high. And one core sort of like facet of Jerome Powell's entire thesis when we're thinking about what Fed strategy is going to be in the next year is shelter costs, because they take the longest time to start going down or air quotes cooling off. They're not going to like become deflationary or anything, but getting south of 7% is going to be critical in terms of getting back to the Fed's 2% inflation target. And I I think the problem is that the way we think about investing, because a lot of us are sort of on the younger side of things, we think of investing from the perspective of the 2010s, and we're trying to get back to, air quotes, normal, which is an environment where there are no interest rates, and VCs can make these insane valuations, and people can make crazy amounts of money, and like, uh, when you are, when you have no safe money, you go after crazier and crazier investments, which is why crypto popped off during this period of 0% interest rates, and why Bitcoin has not recovered. And so what's actually happening is, the 0% interest rates was the insane time. We are going back to normal in terms of like a net net over the last 40 years. Companies are going to have to be real companies again. We're not going to have a bunch of fake tech enterprises with coconut water and everything. We're going to get back to sort of like old school 90s corporate whatever. Is that a good view, Justin, or is that me being a little bit too macro on it? No, I think it's fair. I mean, again, everyone always displays a recency bias. So we look at the last 10, 20 years and assume that's what's been normal. But when you really zoom out, Take a look at the history books. To your point, rates have been significantly higher for significantly longer in the past, and things have done well in those environments. We just got used to a world where debt was super cheap, and because debt was cheap and money was essentially free, if you were able to raise capital, I mean, you could really put it to work, and there wasn't much downside, and that kind of played over itself year over year and really became very exacerbated. There's no reason that won't ever happen again. The world moves in cycles. Things go up, things go down. So as things normalize, like there's definitely going to be a sense of euphoria again, whether it be six months or six years from now, time will tell. Um, but having said all of that, with rates being higher, you know, maybe we we don't grow as fast as we have in the last few years. And is that's the sense of normalcy. And so I think this like period of, volatility is going to remain here longer than people anticipate. That's actually a great money-making opportunity because it, it, companies will become over and undervalued very quickly versus everything just moving up and to the right. Um, so this is where stock picking becomes very important and indexation, which has been the key theme for the last 10 years, kind of really starts to go away. And that's what we've been calling for in 2023 and beyond. Um, picking names that actually are doing well and not just, hey, all of tech's doing well, I'm going to invest in the, in the index. And so you're really starting to see like this bifurcation that I believe will persist for some time. And, you know, it's going to be a while until things normalize. Again, inflation is becoming remain like stubbornly high. The Fed has clearly shown they have no interest in lowering rates until that fixes. And so that's going to be the, the biggest issue. And when you dig in a little bit deeper, you know, to the point we had before about housing, Housing is a huge part of inflation, and when they're just not really building homes because they're not incentivized to and rates are high and it's inexpensive to do it, it doesn't matter how much you raise rates. If there's not enough supply to go around, prices are going to be increased, and that only gets exacerbated, too, with you know people owning Airbnbs and all these different properties and like there be even being less supply. So you know it's, it's a long-winded way of saying housing costs, energy costs, which are huge portions of what people pay for, even if they're excluded in some measures of inflation, are ultimately going to persist for a while. And that's why we believe the Fed hasn't really lowered rates. And 
are anticipating keeping it higher for longer. So that's kind of kind of going to be our outlook. Individual names being really smart about where you allocate capital, because again, this heightened period of volatility we believe will persist. And that's you know, and one thing too, audience. I'm going to give you a quick call back here because Justin, you pointed out how like. A lot of people are thinking, okay, we can't start just buying indexes and everything's going to go up and to the right. We're going to have to be in an era of winners and losers. If you go back to bank earnings, you can kind of see that key perspective being one of the things that's driving a little bit of the weirdness we're seeing in bank numbers. We mentioned BlackRock, how they have a bunch of net outflows that are kind of concerning. But if you go into BlackRock's numbers, um, the main place, the main reason they have a net outflow this quarter is because in their institutional money, you know, their big money sort of investors, they have $36 billion just leaving their index strategies because everyone's seeing, okay, I can't just bet on the index anymore. I have to be more strategic. I have to be thinking more sort of specifically about this. So you're seeing the big money play in this way. And that kind of helps us understand where we're moving. So I think that's a really, you know, key thing to keep in mind. Like you're going to see a much more complicated sort of equities environment emerge from this if interest rates stay higher for longer. It may not break everything, so to speak. We're seeing the winners in their various industries weather this very well. Pepsi did really well with earnings this week. Delta is going to remain sort of the top in class airline, but that also means we're going to produce losers. Capital is going to leave folks from other industries. American Airlines is suffering. The budget airlines are suffering if they're not Ryanair, right? So it's really interesting to see how you sort of manage your inflows and outflows to make sure you can survive an era where you can't just use cheap debt to get out of every single problem, right? Or just keep throwing money at these situations. So we're entering into a really like real business moment, but I think one thing that's really critical to keep in mind is that as as things stand right now i think sort of the perma bear perspective is not playing out you're not seeing companies get completely steamrolled by interest rates instead you're seeing some really fast adaptation at least at a corporate pace like the fact that we have done this in a year is crazy like mark zuckerberg announced the year of efficiency basically this time last year Everyone followed the model, and we're already seeing a bucket of success with it. So when we look into that, Justin, I think one thing, as we kind of run out of time here as well, you know, we've kind of taken a meandering walk through sort of a very complicated moment in the market, but let's get into some outlook stuff. We're going to be here in earnings season for a while, so it's going to take this week by week. Uh, the only real big earnings we're watching next week, obviously, is Tesla. We haven't even talked about a recent update to Tesla's strategy. So when we look at this, uh, Justin, um, everyone's very concerned. Tesla has basically cut prices for most of their vehicles by upwards of 15, you know, even up to 20% here and in China. Um, the main reason people invest in Tesla is because their margins are crazy. They shut down production over the summer in a lot of factories to upgrade them. Like, why are we still bullish on this stock when they are qu- clearly like setting themselves up for like an absolute brawl with like the likes of Ford as opposed to maintaining their sort of luxury margin sort of percentile here? Yeah, I mean, Tesla's in such a interesting position. You look at them, they've continued to defy expectations and if they go up, they go down. There's, I don't know if saying there's not a lot of sense to it is is the right way to put it, but a big bet that we've made is really on the future of like AI uh, and how much processing power like they've been able to kind of leverage. Um, and so if you haven't read the report or this all sounds new to you, I would recommend heading to our site or our app we really talk more about Tesla in depth and why we believe, you know, there's so much more than a, just a car company, that they're a software company. Um, that That's really the big focus on it. And they've continued to defy expectations, and that's why they beat pretty much all of our price targets, which is great to see. Um, but past that, the, the short of it is 
we're really looking at their their compute and their this massive supercomputer that they're building called Gojo. Um, and they're designing and building their own AI-specific chips. Um, and then this is going to be a huge part because this is how we believe like this computing power will help them achieve a lot of their goals. Um, again, we can get more into it. You can, if you want to see more, we definitely recommend heading to the app and reading more. But effectively, like getting to full self-driving, licensing this to other platforms, um, you know, a handful of other things we're we're looking for. You know, getting giving this kind of like compute power to other industries, even outside of auto. Um, this is this is where we really see them. You know, moving going forward. The cars is definitely a huge a huge piece of it. They're lowering prices, raising costs. It's definitely not great. Um, but we're we're really long term believers in the as them as a software play and a technology play more so than an auto play. That's really been the thesis since day one. And to give you sort of like more insight into that audience, I just want to point out, you heard Justin mention full self-driving. I really want you to go to app.mobi.co. I want you to, you know, sign up for a free trial if you haven't already. Go check out our actual report there and just kind of see the mechanics of it because uh, one thing that a lot of people kind of get caught up on is the idea of a full self-driving system that's entirely based on cameras. Like most real self-driving companies with like actual robo-taxis require like LiDAR or some other sort of secondary system besides cameras themselves to do full self-driving right and the key contention of the price target we have with tesla right now uh, is a fundamentally conservative one because we're saying it actually doesn't matter if tesla cracks this potentially impossible computing problem no one has ever solved a problem as complicated as full self-driving with just camera inputs alone it's an insane amount of data visual systems with artificial intelligence are very 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 hard to sort of parse and develop and that's why you know we have been one year away from full self-driving for what like eight years now like we the more we try to solve the problem the more we discover how impossible it is however what tesla has done is they have developed the architecture for this dojo supercomputer that is going to be one of the best visual processing systems basically ever built they're already at the if we are to believe sort of Tesla's growth curve, they've already become sort of the maybe the fifth or the fourth most powerful organization in the world in terms of raw computing power. Like basically only the CIA is beating Tesla right now. When we look at that, that's some really powerful stuff, especially when we look at the AI landscape and see that everyone's attacking sort of a more general AI perspective. And so you're seeing people go after like basically trying to own the whole ecosystem, become the operating system for AI. Tesla's trying to do a specific use case in the same way that Amazon set up AWS to solve a specific technical problem. And now AWS is their most profitable enterprise and frankly, the main value add at Amazon Really, the Dojo supercomputer can become Tesla's AWS moment because they can license this to companies with huge margins that use visual processing as well. You're talking um, aerospace, you're talking defense, you're talking security. There's lots of need for visual computing, and no one is attacking it sort of like as cheaply or as effectively as Tesla is. So the main thing we're going to be watching for in Tesla earnings is any real numbers in terms of actual dojo chips built again tesla's not actually building the chips they have designed them themselves but they're having tsmc manufacturing them and is that a key bottleneck i don't know we're going to find out together so we want to hear about that and we also are going to be very watching very closely the movement in tesla's margins per vehicle because the big gamble that drove tesla stock down over the summer was they massively missed on deliveries in q3 shutting down their factories over the summer to getting getting to some efficiencies so we really want to see those margins pop back up in response right we might only be 
beginning seeing the beginnings of that. We won't really see that until uh, Q4 earnings are reported. But those are the two key areas of information. At Tesla's in, uh, Investor Day, la- the beginning of this year, we saw a lot of encouraging developments in terms of how they're going to be making their gigafactories more efficient. Can they accomplish these efficiencies, or is that kind? Or are they already sort of at that sort of level of perfect efficiency? So that's the main things we're watching with Tesla stock. We think they can get back on track in terms of their margins, they're going to always going to get kind of compared to um, their Chinese competitors as well. Like BYD is crushing them in terms of volume, but obviously the price points are not even in the same universe. So Tesla's always going to win on margins there. But can BYD accomplish their own efficiencies and catch up a little bit and make a more compelling argument for the Chinese market? Is Ford ever going to figure out this UAW strike and then catch up to Tesla in terms of being like the mid-market winner in EVs? The attacks are coming from all sides. Tesla has picked their lane. And so in order to win in that lane, they have to hit a bunch of targets computational power as well as per vehicle margins that needs to go mildly back up to get the market's confidence back to justify their super high valuations we're watching that super closely we're super bullish but we're going to give that price target some time to develop in terms of that justin uh, we managed to go pretty heavily over time here obviously there's a lot to talk about but is there anything else you wanted to cover before we go ahead and sort of like winded this down here no i think this is pretty comprehensive i mean touching upon oil inflation cpi conflict in the middle east outlook on earnings like these are the most important themes going forward and you know anything more granular uh talking about individual names outside of the quick you know tidbit on tesla um i really think it's it's best to just kind of see our written work because it's it's more extensive Exactly. And I think one thing we're going to gear up to cover too, Justin, we'll be talking more about keeping an eye on various asset inflation. If you check us out over on Instagram, folks, we've been watching commodity prices in response to everything going on in the world. Wheat prices have managed to get down from their highs during the Russian conflict. But troublingly, uh, today, they're starting to pop up a little bit. So that's going to be a key factor in terms of thinking about supply side inflation and how that affects everyone. Regardless, audience, I think that's a pretty solid place to end here. So as always, audience, you can feel free to check us out over at app.mobi.co as we're thinking about where to move forward from here. As always, our long-term perspective here comes from our analyst team, which is headed up by Justin Kramer, our CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at mobi.co. If you have any questions for us, you can find us over in our Discord where we record this every Friday or hit us up at hello mobi.co. Otherwise, audience, we really appreciate your time. And as always, we like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.